Hello and welcome to Jared Radio. My name is Jesse Gutman and I'll be your host. This podcast is aimed to advance education through the study of the practice of law and legal rights. Welcome back to another episode of the Jured Podcast. We have some great content for you this week, and I'm happy to bring it to you in this much-changed landscape of COVID-19 and the pandemic. It's hard to think and talk about legal issues, but we have to. That's the content we are going to bring you for the next little while. This first event, COVID-19, Protecting and Advancing Rights During the Pandemic, Part 1, Raising to the Challenges Facing Our Clients. You'll hear introductions of the panelists and the law union within this presentation, so I'm not going to get too much into that now. You'll hear from two members of the law union, Sharu Abdul-Hussein and Ben Hognestad, as well as the presenters Stephanie Okola, Jillian Rogan, and Max Scott. They will be speaking about family law, bail issues in criminal law, as well as what we are seeing within social movements and specifically in the immigration slash refugee context. I hope to bring you more content like this. If you have suggestions or questions, please feel free to write us at juredfoundation at gmail.com and we'll do our best to get some information over to you. Now, of course, the provisio here is this is not legal advice. What you'll hear is simply legal information, something that will hopefully give you some guidance and solace in this difficult time. Thanks for joining us. My name is Sheru, and I'm a member of the Law Union of Ontario Steering Committee. A little bit about the Law Union. Law Union of Ontario is an organization that's committed to challenging hierarchies, including those of race, wealth, gender, and expertise within legal systems, practice, and education. We are a coalition of progressive lawyers, legal workers, students, and community members striving to develop collective approaches to bring about systemic and individual change. The Law Union attempts to counter the traditional protections afforded by the legal system to social, political, and economic privilege. We welcome both our members and our non-members today, and we thank you for your support. So what I wanted to start off with is just a comment that, you know, we're, we're about to have a discussion about the colonial legal system. It's a system that us as lawyers and paralegals, that's a system that we, we work within, but it's not the only legal system that's operating in these territories right now. And since time immemorial, I'm, of course, I'm speaking of Indigenous legal systems and obviously um, that is working towards justice for Indigenous peoples is a huge part of the kind of work that we as social justice advocates um, should be trying to do. So what I'd like to start with is a little exercise, which is about basically the amount of time, uh, the time difference between when this colonial legal system started, uh, as opposed to the the legal systems that were here before. So colonial uh, anthropologists put human activity in in Ontario at at least uh, 10,000 years ago. So if we were to translate 10,000 years into a into 24 hours. Each hour would be about 400 years. And Canadian Confederation, uh, if we do that, Confederation happened somewhere between about 1130 and 1145. That's how long Indigenous legal systems have been operating on this land and that Canadian Confederation started 
around 11.30 or 11.45 at the very end of the day. And we, of course, as lawyers and, and legal observe, uh, and legal workers uh, know or ought to know that uh, the legal foundations of this system um, are actually quite suspect according to the, to the colonial system as well. And so it leads us to the question that I think we always need to have in mind, which is what are we doing as lawyers, as social justice um, advocates, as individuals, what are we doing to return, to work to return lands, resources, and jurisdiction to indigenous peoples? Um, I think that that's a very important thing. And, and what I'm trying to get at here is what one of my very favorite professors from law school spoke about in a, in a paper called a Land Acknowledgement 2.0, right? It's important. Uh, uh, Professor Hewitt um, speaks about uh, land acknowledgements being a, a useful thing. It's a first step, and it needs to be followed by action. Without any further ado, um, I'd like to introduce our first speaker, Jillian Rogan. So Jillian Rogan joined the Windsor Faculty of Law in July of 2017 as the assistant clinic professor. Her research focuses on judicial interim release, evidentiary issues in sexual assault law, legal clinic scholarship, including legal ethics, and feminist critical race post-colonial theory. She's currently the clinic professor and runs the clinic academic credit program at Community Legal Aid and Legal Assistance of Windsor. Professor Rogan holds an LLM uh, from Osgoode Hall, York University, a Master of Environmental Studies from the Faculty of Environmental Studies at York University, an LLB from the University of Windsor, and a Bachelor of Honours in Indigenous Studies and Philosophy from Trent University. She's a member of the Law Society of Ontario, called in 2009, and is a practicing criminal defense lawyer. Prior to her appointment, she was duty counsel lawyer, criminal law, and a research lawyer with Legal Aid Ontario, and worked as review counsel at Community Legal Aid. She clerked at, for the Superior Court of Justice in Toronto in fulfillment of her articles. Professor Rogan sits on a number of boards and is heavily involved in her community. So with that, I'll invite you, Julian, to take it away. Hi, everybody. Thank you, um, Ben, for that introduction and for all of your opening remarks. And I feel like Professor Hewitt might be proud. I also want to thank the organizers for organizing this event under such extraordinary and difficult circumstances. I really appreciate all the work that went into this. So in thinking about um, protecting and advancing rights during the pandemic, I wanna to speak today a little bit about prison abolition and the ways in which the pandemic may have created some space for us as criminal defense lawyers to make prison abolition legally relevant, particularly in the context of bail. So, of course, when thinking about the biggest challenge facing accused people, it's jail right now, um, because being detained after a bail hearing can, of course, literally mean a death sentence um, for the accused. But it can also put other prisoners at risk and guards and, and the families of prisoners and guards and, and in turn the public at risk. It's really daily we're hearing more updates about the numbers of people who have been exposed who are currently incarcerated. But as of April 17th, there were 170 inmates that tested positive for COVID-19 at federal jails. And that was only out of 510 people who had been tested. So we know those numbers are misleading and likely low because the testing is not fulsome and there are a lot of people who are incarcerated who are not being tested properly. Of course, we all know that everyone who's currently in jail is at grave risk. And as I mentioned, as are the public and, and prisoners, guards, there's absolutely in, inadequate measures being taken to safeguard the risk. 
So the Minister of Public Safety, Bill Blair, has been very vague, to be, to be frank, about the circumstances of prisons right now, and also really vague about who is being released under what circumstances, what steps are being taken to release people, how many people have been released, and whether there are adequate supports in place for people who have been released. In contrast, other jurisdictions have taken really drastic and meaningful action to release prisoners. For example, Iran freed 54,000 prisoners to combat the spread of COVID-19. In San Francisco, the district attorney took really bold and aggressive action to release 40% of its prison population. So interestingly, and I think this is really important, in the time that 40% of the prisoners were released in San Francisco, there was a correlative 40% decrease in crime rates. So here's a quote by that district attorney. His name is um, Chesa Bowden. He said, one of the things that's interesting that we found in this process is that in fact, it is possible to safely and quickly decarcerate. We found a lot of people who, it turns out, shouldn't really have been incarcerated in the first place. It makes me wonder whether we are doing enough whether we were doing enough before this epidemic to reduce the jail population and to reduce our reliance on incarceration as a first response to so many of our social problems. I think that's really crucially important as um, something we should all be paying attention to. The reality of course, is that the current pandemic poses salient uh, public health risks and jails are particularly um, in danger of crises, as many of them are, but we need to continue to highlight the ways in which prisons themselves create public health crises, even in times when we aren't facing what's deemed to be a global pandemic. So I think that using the tertiary grounds in bail proceedings is one mechanism that we as lawyers can, can use to, to continue to pick up on even after COVID. And I think we can use a lot of the COVID bail case law to to continue to push these these boundaries. Since the outbreak of COVID, the courts, the bail courts have been really quite divided on the issue of releasing people on bail in the midst of the pandemic. There are definitely decisions that say, look, COVID-19 is not a get out of jail free card. But there are a growing number of decisions in favor of releasing people in order to maintain confidence in the administration of justice, which is better known as the tertiary grounds for bail under section 51510C of the criminal code. Um, it's really interesting that prior to uh, the outbreak of COVID, I was researching and writing about abolitionist goals via the bail system. And in particular, looking at the ways in which the tertiary grounds can be used to make certain arguments that erode sort of the power of incarceration or erode the ability to incarcerate. I was looking at the inquiry, I still am, looking at the inquiry into missing and murdered Indigenous women to argue that given that we know that certain policies and practices of taking Indigenous women away from their families, away from their communities, incarcerating them, all of those things can be considered part of Canada's genocidal policies. Certainly that can be used to argue against detention, against the use of sureties and against the use of conditions using those tertiary grounds. Certainly, I hope, public confidence in the administration of justice would be eroded if we knew that the use of a surety, the use of detention of, ind of Indigenous women 
contributes to genocide in Canada. I think what COVID tells us is that it's highlighted the many ways that the tertiary grounds or public confidence grounds and bail proceedings can be used to really push the courts to try and fully understand what that public confidence is. And we really need to, I think, make good use of those grounds to call into question the logics or illogics of the bail system and to try to dismantle the architecture of criminalization and mass incarceration by pointing out the ways in which the bail system doesn't work. Not only does it not work to keep the public safe as it claims to do, it hurts and criminalizes people in its path. Some of the, the highlights from the case law can be that courts have considered really the health concerns of prisoners as militating in favor of release, right? One case even considered that detaining the accused would use up precious public resources that could otherwise be put towards health. Also, the courts have considered the health and safety of the public. So of course, those, um, those reasons are specific to COVID, but I think there's a lot of space here to use those very same arguments in a myriad of different contexts. When we think about mass incarceration of Black people, mass incarceration of Indigenous people, the mass incarceration of people with mental health issues and addictions issues, the mass incarceration of immigrants and uh, many other people that are sort of admired in, in the criminal legal system. So I'm just hopeful that we can use some of these um, spaces to really disrupt the system of mass incarceration in Canada. Stephanie Okola is a passionate litigator and advocate practicing in the areas of family law, child protection, and wills and estates. She appears frequently before the Ontario Court of Justice, Superior Court of Justice, uh, and Divisional Court uh, Appeals and Judicial Reviews, and the Court of Appeal. Stephanie is also an experienced mediator, focusing her mediation practice on community-based mediations and contested custody and access matters. In her spare time, Stephanie is a staunch advocate for access to justice and community legal education. She's active in several community outreach organizations and volunteers her time as a legal educator in primarily low-income and disenfranchised communities. Stephanie previously worked alongside Legal Aid Ontario and members of the Black community to establish a new community-based organization to deliver legal services to Black Ontarians who experience anti-Black racism. She's a member of the Female Black Lawyers Network, the Family Lawyers Association of Ontario, and the ADR Institute of Ontario. So please welcome Stephanie, uh, and uh, we're very excited to have her here. So thank you, Stephanie. Thank you, Benjamin, for that introduction. So first of all, I'd like to thank the Law Union for putting this together today. I'm honored to be here with all my esteemed co-panelists, and I'm also happy to be speaking to an audience that prioritizes advocacy and providing assistance to people in marginalized communities that a lot of us serve. I want to speak a little bit today about the sorts of challenges that a lot of these marginalized folks face in family law and in the child protection context in light of COVID-19 and how we as advocates can support our clients in these really scary times. So I think we can we can all agree that we're we're treading in, you know, uncharted territory right now. Family law and child protection law, which are my areas of practice, are very very people driven areas of law in that they touch the hearts of our clients' lives. 
of their daily lives. So dealing with these, with their deeply personal issues on a regular basis can kind of make them feel like they're a stock center storm all the time, even when you're not in the midst of a public health crisis of these unprecedented proportions. Now, when you're stuck in a situation like this, it makes things sort of even more difficult for our clients to navigate sometimes waters that they don't understand, or sometimes they can't swim. In my own practice, the vast majority of my clients are, are underprivileged. They're living in poverty or on the brink of it, and they're precariously employed. A lot of them are racialized people, re recent immigrants, people who are living in homes where they're experiencing domestic violence, whether that is physical or sexual or psychological or emotional. So oftentimes when they knock on my door, they're really starting from behind. And that's outside of the context of COVID-19. One of the things that has always been obvious to me as a practitioner and to many of my colleagues who provide service for marginalized people is that many of the apparent safeguards or protections in law that are supposedly built into the legal system are really archaic. They are culturally blind and really not reflective of the lives of the majority of the people who are trying to access the legal system. In fact, I often find myself telling my clients that justice doesn't necessarily come in the in the form of a fair end result but rather it's expected to be just the access to the system so justice is not about getting what you're entitled to or deserved at the end but the ability to go to the system and ask for that in the first place so those conversations are often very difficult with my clients who have dealt with who are, are, are currently dealing with really um stressful interpersonal issues I think the legal system and certainly the litigation process in, in this area of law expects people when they show up to put their best foot forward all the time. And as part of my service to my clients, I try to refer them to social programs or services that assist them with managing all the other things that spill into their daily lives and that can exacerbate family conflict. By these services, I mean programs like parenting programs, I mean domestic violence counseling, I mean financial support services, uh, subsidized, subsidized childcare services, subsidized access services that are run by the province or run privately, and really the sort of assistance that I can't provide directly myself, but that my clients need in order to sort of help them navigate these really murky waters. And often these services are crucial to a successful outcome for many of my clients in, in, in the cases that they're facing because they can't deal with some of the issues that they are facing on their own. There is also sort of barriers to education and language issues that they're facing that when they're within the legal system, but particularly when they're before the court, can be a real struggle. So if they speak neither English nor French fluently, and can't find counsel who can support them in speaking whatever their native language may be, it can be even more difficult for people to face any sort of legal system. And in, in the family case, in the family law system, it can be singularly difficult. In some of my cases, actually, my clients do find me through these third party services who, are, who can provide them referrals to lawyers. Because in a lot of instances, these are, are, are folks who don't have access to information readily. So Things that you and I may consider easily accessible may not be easily accessible for some of these folks. One of those examples is the internet. So I've had several clients uh, tell me that they can't send me an email unless they find the time to go to the public library and they can't find a time during the day because they have to work. 
they can't afford the internet in their homes because their priority is to feed themselves and their children and to pay their rent and to make do with these basic expenses. So things that we may in this, in this current digital age consider to be unnecessary expense, in reality for very many people who are living in poverty, they can't afford these basic services. Lots of my clients can't afford to keep their cell phones running all the time because it's a monthly charge that they have to add to all the rest of the bills that they have to pay. They will often go to third party services, social referral services, domestic violence clinics or shelters to be able to get referrals to, to services that I provide or that other lawyers who do similar work to me provide because they can't simply just go on the internet and Google family lawyer in Ontario or in their area. And these are things we sort of don't always think about, but they've become more live as issues in light of this COVID-19 crisis because Lots of folks who may be able to, who may have been able to access these third party services before just don't have them anymore. So since this public health crisis began, I think many of the programs that were previously available to my clients have either been forced to shut down because they're not considered essential services or to offer really extremely limited services. And often these services are limited to online services or telephone services. And again, our clients tend to face some of those barriers like having access to the internet or sometimes having access to an active phone. I think the result unfortunately has been quite disastrous for, for many. You can imagine what it's like spending several months trying to create a safety plan as a, a victim of domestic violence to leave the home in which you reside in with an abuser only to have nowhere to go because the shelter you plan to go to can't accept any more residents in light of COVID-19 or Imagine residing with, like, with an abusive person and, and having your child protection agencies telling you the child that you have in your home is potentially going to be apprehended and removed and, and moved to foster care because within that home context, you cannot provide for them. You cannot protect them from your abusive partner when the reality is most of these folks don't have anywhere to go. If they had a support system that existed outside, you know, there are health issues. So these are some of the issues that we really face. I think advocacy in our, for our clients, particularly vulnerable ones, has become more difficult, but also more necessary in these circumstances. Many of our clients are working essential services and have to take public transportation. And I think while there's been a level of response from the government and the courts to manage this crisis, we've also been suffering with a lot of inconsistent information and decisions that make protecting our clients' rights even more difficult. So for example, even in the initial weeks of the crisis, many of us had to rely on Twitter to find out about court closings and changes to policy. There were even policies that directed clients to speak to, to their lawyers and um, we didn't have the information ourselves because it hadn't been provided publicly. So now many of my colleagues and I have turned to Facebook groups and WhatsApp groups for chats and guidance. These are still places that we can find sort of immediate on the ground information about what's going on. But I think there, there's a need for more of an open conversation as well with the social services that we rely on to assist our clients about how we can work together to manage and collate all the resources that are available to our clients. And we need to challenge the resources that are available to other decision-making powers to be more transparent and thoughtful about the information they're sharing and their resources that they should be sharing particularly. Max Scott uh, is an anarchist who works in the law. Go figure. He's a member of the law union, No One is Illegal, and the Ontario Coalition Against Poverty. He works for the social justice multi-ethnic law firm Carranza LLP. In his free time, he loves his family, 
partner and wonderful 15 year old. Bad suits, science fiction, and cider, not necessarily in that order. And abolition of jails, borders, and all oppression is somewhat of an obsession for Mac. So Mac, please take it away. Hello, everyone. I just wanted to start by saying that I'm really impressed by the new generation or the, the people currently doing leadership in the law union putting this panel together. It's also a great honor to be on a panel with Jillian, Stephanie, and everyone else. So daunting, mind you, but it is a great honor. And I think right now is a time for us to come together as the other panelists have said. So I'm going to go through a couple of things. I'm going to talk about more about um, actual campaigns than legal stuff. Um, I hope that's okay. I do do a, I've been doing a lot of work around uh, the COVID stuff right now. And I've been largely focusing on trying to keep my clients and people we work with alive. I work by and large with, similar to Stephanie, domestic violence survivors and with, well, obviously non-status and migrants and with a lot of people in homeless shelters and otherwise. Because of the way our society is set up as obviously a colonialist, racist, capitalist, patriarchal society, a lot of these people are the people that we are leaving behind. I want to talk about actually two cases, if that's, three cases, actually, if that's okay to start off, just to sort of give like a human feeling on it. And two of these have actually gone public. So I'm, I'm gonna mention their first name. I work with a woman named Yime, who fled, she's a journalist, and she fled from the Middle East due to being attacked for being a feminist progressive journalist. And she lives in the shelter at Finch and Young called the Willowdale Shelter. And the Willowdale Shelter has 200 people. And as of yesterday, was they had 130 of those people tested positive with COVID. Now, she's in a room on her own. We've been talking to media about it, but it leads to the question of like, why do we have people homeless people, refugees, migrants in shelters in a period where we are in a global pandemic. And, you know, it's easy for me to be at home. I get paid a law firm wage and my partner has money and my other housemates have money. But when you're in a homeless shelter, you're basically in a like vortex of infection. And we've also seen in Seton House, which is the largest shelter for homeless men in Canada, that there's been, I think, 13 cases at this point. So it's just, it's, anyways, I'll come back to it, but it's, it's a vortex of infection. And she's brilliant, she's a feminist, and she's speaking out. Then I have another client named Queen, who also has gone into the media, who worked with a, a senior in a senior home. She worked under the table. As a result, the employer, and the employer's actually been kind of helpful in some ways, but the employer didn't provide proper uh, personal protection equipment. So now she's been uh, tested positive after a pile of people at her, at the shelter that she worked, or the uh, seniors home that she worked at caught COVID and she's stuck at home. And for both of them, accessing the usual benefits that most people in Canada, well, most citizens and permanent residents in Canada, to be clear, get, it has been a real uphill battle. And we've been trying to get people on social assistance. I've gotten, I think, 12 clients on social assistance, five now that have been tested positive for COVID. But these are people, and I think both Stephanie and Jillian spoke about this, but it's like the jails, the shelters, people working under the table. These are always the people we've left behind. And they're the ones 
that are getting the disease. And not only is it problematic in terms of the racism and the classism, the sexism, transphobia that goes on with this, but it's problematic because it doesn't actually make our society safer. So we have had some wins, detentions. We have been fighting. There was a 30 detainees in the Lavelle Immigration Holding Center that went on hunger strike. And now most of them have been released. There's still some in there. Uh, in Toronto, the Refugee Law Office, and big call out to them, and also the Toronto Bail Program, have been trying to get most people out. I believe right now there's under 10 people in the Toronto Immigration Holding Center. But on the negative side, they continue to hold people. And the jails, as Jillian talked about better than I would, are a complete, a complete disaster. For the Canada Emergency Relief Benefit, which is a federal benefit to provide um, money for people who can't work due to COVID, we managed to get them to include international students, which I think was a big win. We've managed to um, increase the amount, the amount of, 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 of monitoring of workplaces for farm workers who are quarantined and to make sure that the farm workers, so there's a program called the Seasonal Agricultural Worker Program, which is to bring basically people mostly from the Caribbean over to really low paid farm work in Canada. And because people need to eat, they've actually allowed them into the country. But as anyone else, they have to be quarantined for 14 days after they get here. And I don't mean to prejudice, but by and large, the employers treat them like garbage. Well, the government has agreed because of work by groups like the Migrant Rights Network to and um, Justicia for Migrant Workers has agreed to actually let them, like make sure that the employers actually give them what they need to live, that they're safe while they're being quarantined. We've been getting a lot of people on social services, a lot of clients, because again, we need to make sure that people have what they need. We have ongoing campaigns. I've been working with a number of groups around these. The Migrant Rights Network, which is a national network of migrant uh, member groups that work on migrant rights around the, the country, has been working on increasing access to the Canada Emergency Relief Benefit. Uh, the Migrant Workers Alliance for Change, has been working on two different things. So both uh, pressuring the province to release benefits to people regardless of status, which we believe is already true in law like with very small exceptions, but we want the province to promise that they're following the law because no offense again, but they often don't. We've been uh, also pressuring Immigration Refugees Citizenship Canada to make sure that they don't take it out on people for getting benefits, whether that's federal benefits or provincial benefits. Again, I talked about farm workers. There's also been a lot of really good work. There's a really amazing uh, sex worker rights organization called Butterfly. They work with migrants and Asian sex workers, and they've been doing a lot of work. I don't know if people saw last night, but they've greatly expanded the, the, the powers. Of, so please can now stop anybody in the province and ask for identification. And as of last night, they now have access to the, uh, the database that tells who has, uh, has actually got COVID. And our fear is that this will basically not seeking to get tested. So I'm going to finish off with a second. I think we're at a crux. Do we build a society that truly keeps people safe by protecting everyone and everyone? Or do we continue as our society has done to marginalize Black, Indigenous people of color? homeless, migrants, sex workers, elders, disabled people, 
in the name of saving the elite few. An injury to one is an injury to all, and we learn from this. And Ben Vilko, can I ask you for a favor? Can you put everyone on mic, all the participants, just for one minute? We are a collective. We are not, and I, I mean, my fellow panelists are brilliant, brilliant people. And I'm so honored to be with so many brilliant people, but we are all of us, and that is our strength. Let's do it. No one is illegal on stolen land. No one is illegal on stolen land. No one is illegal on stolen land. We can fight and we can win. Okay, so now you've completed part one, where the speakers make their presentations, and now we move to part two, the post-chant section, which is more of a question and answer section organized by the moderator. First looks at cases, then talks about electronic bracelets. We hear a definition of what is urgent by the courts and some ideas by the panelists about what we should expect moving forward. Sure. So um, those of us in the family law and child protection bar, we're sort of, we've named these cases the COVID cases. Uh, and I think uh, they all started to sort of come out around mid-March. I believe the week of, the week of March 17th, on March, the, specifically on March 16th, the night of March 16th, the Superior Court, um, first on Twitter, indicated that the courts would be closed effective March 17th for in-person appearances, and everybody who had an appearance after, sorry, after March 18th was automatically adjourned and had to contact the court to change their, to change their court date or get a new court date or find out sort of what the next steps would be. And that was very early in the process. There wasn't very much information about what people who had urgent matters would be able to do other than there's going to be urgent motions that can be heard. And then sort of over the next couple of weeks, there were a couple more directives from both the Superior Court and the Ontario Court about what protocol each court had to follow with respect to hearing urgent motions and how those would be sent to a triage judge and then determined whether or not they were urgent in the first place. So first, the urgency was a requirement for your matter to be heard in court. Other than that, you were going to be adjourned until a date after May 29th. And secondly, this urgency first had to be established by a, a triage judge before it could be heard by the court. In the first couple of weeks, I think there was a lot of confusion about what counts as urgent because it's quite a strict test in the law. And there came was one particular case I recall called uh, Ribeiro and Wright. I don't have the citation with me right now, but if anybody wants some of those citations, please feel free to reach out to me. It was by a, ju a judge called Justice Pazarats, and he sort of laid out a, a framework for what's happening in, in these COVID times and how people should be determining what needs to be brought to court on a court on an urgent basis. And that, that case has become sort of something that a lot of judges have relied on as a standard. So this is what we should really follow and suggest to parties in terms of determining what is urgent and what is not. And a couple of the things that came out of that were positive. So it was an understanding that access is not, for example, just going to be canceled simply because of COVID. Parents shouldn't be deprived of their relationships with their children as a result of this public health crisis, but they also need to be alive to the issues that are contained within this public health crisis and ensure that they are protecting themselves and their families because protection of children is paramount. But also there wasn't really an understanding of the fact that some of the, the folks who are bringing these urgent motions to court or, or looking to see their families really don't have 
you know, advantage or privilege attached to their lives. So I mean, these are folks who might be essential workers, people who have to take public transportation, and people who may have high conflict with their with their ex-partners because Justice Pazarat's indicated in his decision, you should be working with the opposing party to try and resolve the issue first before you bring this as an urgent motion. Imagine situations where you're dealing with somebody who's been abusive in the past or you are unrepresented, you don't know how to navigate the legal system. For those folks, you know, I think a lot of them are still in the position where they haven't seen their kids and they don't know how to because they can't navigate the legal system. Since then, the body of case law has been sort of up and down in terms of what judges have said is the standard criteria for determining whether or not access should happen. I've seen lots of case law follow the Ribeiro and Wright decision, and similarly, lots of case law completely ignore it. Even lower courts completely ignore it. And judges sort of apply their own logic to whether or not access should happen. And parties are have to file you know, limited affidavits. They can't give all the evidence they need to, and that becomes an access to justice issue as well. You know, If you're told you've got five pages to describe years of abuse and why it's an issue for this access, it's a problem. The other case that I'm thinking about, I don't think I can share the citation for that one yet because all I have is an endorsement. It's a child protection case. I don't think it's published at the moment, so it still has parties' names on it. But it's a particularly interesting case. It came out just last week. And I'll give you some, some of the facts on that one. It was a, a mother who's in a shelter. Uh, she's an, an immigrant from an African country. And she has um, was reported to be HIV positive. Her child was not. She was having issues in the shelter um, around her mental health and poor supervision of the child. The, sh the, the, the shelter reported to the Child Protection Agency that they were concerned about mom. Child Protection Agency decided that what they wanted to do was apprehend this child. Mom managed to retain counsel, good counsel, went to court to deal with the issue. And thankfully, counsel was able to show the court that, you know, despite mom's stress and anxiety, she was taking whatever necessary steps she needed to, to manage those feelings and to manage her health overall. And importantly, by the time the matter went to court, the shelter was back on her side. And that's a social support that was crucial for mom to be able to just parent. It was where she lived. It was where she received resources. It was how she was able to feed herself and her child. So having the shelter, a third party resource on her side, was really important for the court to be able to see, look, this, this mother is going to be able to function under terms of supervision from the society because she has, she has a support system in place. Unfortunately, not many people are in that situation, but this was one of those circumstances where it became really live that having that third party support is crucial, especially because the Child Protection Agency has sort of issued a blanket policy to say all you know, in-person access is canceled. Even if parties had third-party support from, from, let's say, the kin who a child was living with, third-party third party, um, access is cancelled. And there were judges who were agreeing with the blanket policy. So seeing that last decision was actually really hopeful in, in terms of seeing that there are some judges who are now taking more time to, because some more time has passed and there's more case law coming out and there's more evidence that they are seeing, taking more time to be really thoughtful about some of these decisions um, and thoughtful about how, you know, sort of blanket policies affect not just the lives of the adults, but particularly the lives of the children. One thing that I'll say is that it's sort of interesting that I think in many ways, the Crown has, in my view, requested sort of taken positions that I think are really unreasonable um, in many of the cases. So in some cases, they've insisted on evidence of pre-existing health conditions in the accused such that jail would be, you know, a heightened risk and 
getting that kind of evidence at the bail phase when you're supposed to be able to have your bail hearing determined within a day or so of your arrest is uh, pretty onerous for somebody who's in custody, firstly. Secondly, I think similarly, they've, re- they've taken the position in some cases that there's no evidence that, that there are going to be COVID outbreaks. They've adduced evidence that, like in the jails, and they've adduced evidence that, um, you know, the jails are taking proper steps and precautions. And in some cases, the judge bought that argument. So and then on the other hand, uh, you see posts from, you know, the government saying, oh, no, 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 there, look how many people we've released. Well, I, I actually think that um, the reason that people have been released is because of defense counsel fighting tooth and nail to get their clients released, not because the Crown attorneys have as a whole been taking reasonable positions in light of COVID-19. But if anybody's interested in in like a list of the case law or um, I'm, I'm keeping track of it the best I can. So email me or um, alternatively, LAO Law has um, lists of COVID case law. This situation has maybe brought the discussion of electronic monitoring in the context of bail. And I think also, uh, I thought I heard, Mac, you mentioned the other day, even immigration detention, sort of up a little bit to the to, to top of mind. So I'm wondering if uh, if either of you just have any sort of reflections on electronic monitoring. So in Quebec, so Toronto, so there's three regions in immigration uh, jurisdictions. There's West, Central, which is basically Ontario, and there's the East. Um, in Toronto, which is Central, there has never been much use of electronic monitoring because the Toronto Bill Program, which is a program that helps people to get out, doesn't like it. They've never accepted it. But in the East, I got a call from a, a comrade and an organizer who does migrant justice out there, and they're putting a lot of people on, on electronic monitoring. Now, only similar to other council, I, I like to get people out. But the problem with electronic monitoring, as someone else, can, Jillian can probably speak to more than me, is that it's really intrusive on your life. And what we have seen over the last few years, and it's partially in response, to our struggle to stop people being detained in immigration is increased surveillance in migrant communities. And I think this is a huge problem. Like these are our neighbors, our coworkers, our friends, our partners, our family, and they're being surveilled just because of the, basically their, their race and the fact that they came to Canada. So I'm personally against electronic monitoring, but it has been on an increase at least in the Quebec and East Coast for immigration. Thanks, Mac. Jillian? I think I, I have a lot, a few things to say about electronic monitoring. I, I think one of the things that I'm um, trying to highlight, like there's no evidence about the use of the use of bail as a mechanism for keeping the public safe. So, for example, there's no evidence of that sureties keep the community safe or that they ensure people get to court. There's actually no evidence that in the Canadian context about their conditions of release keep the, the community safe. There's no evidence that people commit more crimes when they're on bail and bail has come to be seen as like, you know, detention keeps people safe. And if there's a surety, then, you know, people won't commit crimes. There's no evidence on any of that. So. In terms of electronic monitoring, it's it's intrusive as 
as Max said, it's also going to be used disproportionately on racialized and indigenous people. There's also an issue in criminal law. It's not always covered by the state. So it comes at the accused expense. So therefore accused who have access to resources can access it and those who don't, um, don't. But what I'd hate to see, it's a hugely intrusive um, measure and really drastic measure. And I'd love to look at alternative ways of keeping the community safe if there is a safety concern rather than um, going to shackling people um, in, in electronic shackles. The last thing I wanna say is that I think we need to be challenging these mechanisms that, to the extent that we can and, and asking the Crown to provide evidence of the utility of certain mechanisms or evidence that, that supports sort of their use more broadly than we, than we currently do. Urgency is, it's a strict, it's a strict test in law. And the courts, at least at the beginning, were trying to really apply that test very strictly. So in, in many cases, uh, they were looking at, you know, are there kids who are being um, taken away from their homes and removed from the country? So is there, a, you know, a, a hate convention issue? Are there kids who are, sorry, are there folks who are, um, you know, preventing the other parent from having access to the child completely with no reason? Um, are, there, are there people who are not practicing social distancing and exposing their children to some sort of health concerns? Are there parents who are not concerned about the other parents' health concerns and exposing themselves and in effect exposing the children and then exposing the parent who has a health concern in the home? Are there folks who are not able to pay their mortgages and living in homes with uh, abusive partners and therefore need exclusive possession of that home? I think in the early, earlier body of case law, the court was a little bit reticent to, to slacken um, the rules with respect to determining what's emergency. But at least as of a couple of days ago, I, I noted that they're hearing many more cases that they're deeming urgent than they would have ordinarily. So it seems to me that they've sort of broadened the their their understanding of what urgency actually is even if they're not telling us exactly how they're broadening it because they don't want there to be an, an overwhelming amount of applicants coming to the court and saying well this is an urgent matter they're also you know triaging these issues right at the start to try and determine whether or not in the first place there is urgency a, a bit of urgency met and then beyond that I think the people are getting sort of more attuned to what needs to be happening in order for it to be con to considered urgent and are trying a little bit harder to work with, you know, opposing parties or their lawyers. But that being said, not everybody is in that position. And the difficulty is the court may consider one thing urgent, but we don't consider urgency the same thing in our own personal lives. Part of the issue is, is really a financial issue. So there are people who are in circumstances where um, urgency is that they, they need to have the child support payable immediately because they don't have a source of income currently and they need to take care of their kids. But I haven't yet seen a child support case. Um, there, there may be one, but I haven't yet seen in my review a child support case come to light as an urgent issue. And the Family Responsibility Office is not doing very much in terms of enforcing those orders right now. So you know, I think it's it's sort of a reminder, a stark reminder that like what works in law doesn't necessarily work practically for people's lives. Um, and particularly this issue of urgency has made that very clear. So 
there are many clients who I would consider to be in an urgent situation because they don't have the finances to, to meet their day-to-day -day needs, to feed their children and so forth, and they can't you know, go out and, and, and make money on the side, but the court wouldn't consider their situation urgent. What are some ways that you feel we can push for sustainable solutions uh, that address our clients' issues going beyond the pandemic? But I think we need to look at systemic solutions. And I was quite impressed when Stephanie talked about how, sorry, Stephanie, uh, how legal solutions don't always work for our clients, particularly when they're marginalized and oppressed people. I think we need to figure out ways to support movements without taking those movements over. And we need to use this moment to show that we are a society as a whole, and that includes marginalized, oppressed people, and that leaving them behind, an injury to one is an injury to all. If someone else gets sick right now, we all get sick. And I think the way we need to do that is to deal with the fact that we have collective power, that if we follow the leadership of oppressed communities, we have a lot of wisdom, You know, whether that's Black, Indigenous, people of color communities, queer communities, disabled communities, and we need to move beyond the law into how do we use our skills as lawyers and legal workers to support movements. Because I, I agree with Stephanie, I hope I'm not misquoting you, but that there isn't always legal solutions to these systems of oppression. Yeah, so I, I agree with Mac. Um, I think really the biggest difficulty I encounter in my practice in general is that what has worked in the law in the past doesn't work now because the people who are accessing the system look different to, the, to, to who was accessing the system when some of these laws were written in the first place. Um, and there needs to be, I think, a, a closer cultural understanding and um, religious understanding and sort of just a social understanding by the bench and the bar, people providing services to, to marginalized people about what their real lives look like. I recall one case I had where the judge got upset at my client because he was he had to move out of the home when the party separated and find his own apartment couldn't find an apartment within that neighborhood that was within his price range and they had a shared parenting um, arrangement and so he needed to transit for an hour back and forth with the kids and the judge said how can you keep your kids in transit for an hour and to me that was a very tone deaf um response to a real life issue how many people in the, the greater Toronto area don't commute for an hour. You could be 10 kilometers away and because of traffic and having to take transit and change buses, have an hour long commute. So to me, that was a very tone deaf response to a parent trying to do something responsible. And, and that's an issue. I think there needs to be more conversation between social service organizations and lawyers who are providing services to um, marginalized communities for us to closer understand our clients' issues and see how we can support them within the context of the litigation that we're doing or the, the advocacy that we're doing for them. And I think we also need to have, at least lawyers need to have a stronger voice in court in terms of raising these issues, even if we think the court won't take them seriously. I think we need to start conversations about them. Otherwise, um, the people who are making the decisions won't consider them to be serious issues. So if I'm not raising um, a race issue or a culture issue, as important and relevant in whatever representations I'm making from my clients, then it doesn't appear relevant or important to the court anyway. And they're not going to be interested in making changes or being reflective in their decisions if counsel's submissions are not leaned towards 
showing the court that these are important and relevant issues and the voices of the marginalized and the disenfranchised and the racialized and immigrant communities and so forth are important and relevant. Um, I think I agree with everything both Mac and uh, Stephanie have just said. I, yeah, I, I feel like when I'm at the clinics teaching students, what I like constantly impart is that we need to make it, make these issues legally relevant. So in addition to following the lead of the communities that were, uh, of people that we're representing and uh, movement building and all of that stuff and connecting as lawyers to those things, I, I really think we also need to find ways to make these issues legally relevant. And as Stephanie said, like, it's, I know from experience, it's difficult, it's hard to raise race and, you know, raise issues of indigeneity and constantly be challenged and be laughed at, to be honest, in many circumstances or, but we can't be deterred from, from knowing that it, it is important and that we do have to put these issues constantly and not back down and put them before the courts in whatever way, in whatever ways that we can make it legally relevant, make all of this legally relevant, because it is, I think. Thank you for joining us once again on the Jured podcast. You heard an array of speakers on an important subject in the COVID-19 context, and we will be bringing you more content like this over the coming weeks, so stay tuned. In the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter, you can follow us on Facebook, Jured, J-U-R hyphen E-D, and if you feel like it, you can donate and get a tax receipt. That's nice. Taxes are due in a week, or depending on when you listen to this, some week, sometime in the future. Rest assured, we will use that money to invest in more programs like this. You can also email us, juredfoundation at gmail.com. We're always interested in hearing your stories, your feedback, and looking for new participants in these activities. Until then, see you soon in solidarity and stay healthy.